There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 209. Say, why not head over to the Nerdist YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Nerdist. Today, we have bowled the Mythbusters. Adam Savage and Carrie and Grant and Tori uh, decided to take on Team Nerdist up in San Francisco at Presidio Bowl. So uh, please join myself, Wired Magazine's Adam Rogers, uh, Crab Cats, Holly Conrad, and also cosplayer Linda Lee of Just Cause, uh, also on the Nerdist channel, uh, over at youtube.com slash Nerdist. And then click subscribe so we don't all die. Well, I don't mean to include you and the we, I mean me. And why would you care if me and my people die? I don't know. I can't give you all the reasons. I just need you to care. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. It's super easy, uh, and also good that it's official, because you can't just draw a stamp on an envelope and then expect the Postal Service to deliver that. They're not going to do it. Either the Postal Service or the band, the Postal Service, they're not going to do it either. So Stamps.com will give you uh, any computer that you have access to. You can print out your postage. Uh, It automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package. Or you can print directly on the envelopes if you want to. Then you just hand your mail to your mail carrier. You will never have to set foot in the post office again unless you have a weird post office fetish. Then you're free to do that as much as you like. But if you're running a business from your home or if you just like printing out stamps a bunch, then you can do that uh, with Stamps.com. Right now, Stamps.com has a special offer for Nerdist listeners. Use the promo code NERDIST. There's a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer, plus a digital scale, and up to $55 of free postage. So please don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and then you just type in NERDIST. That is Stamps.com, and enter the promo code NERDIST. And now this episode, uh, this was a wonderful conversation where I could sit down with Anna Gasteyer, uh, from SNL and also uh, Suburgatory. And she's a uh, super funny, uh, groundlings background, amazing improviser, and uh, we had a lovely chat. And to prove this, I recorded it, and then I invented a Nerdist podcast so that I could put it out. So a lot of work went into showing you how awesome and funny Anna Gasteyer is. So I hope you appreciate it. Isn't it nice to chastise your audience before you ask them to like something? <laughs> you better like this, please. That's the uh, that's that's the uh, the insecure bully. Nerds podcast number two hundred nine with Anna Gasteyer. Now entering nerdist.com.
Ice tea has oh, been presented. Good. Okay. Good. The best interview ever. So we will meet you in four that hours. in that lobby in four four. Yeah, Is that true? Four hours. Four hours. Are you in the Are you in this building for that long? No, we're gonna go buy a present for my son. We're gonna go to the Grove. Okay. I, if I arrive home tomorrow without Legos or Playmobil, I'm in hot shit. Bye bye. Thanks, Marco. All right, I've, I just started recording, so oh, we're already can we we're swear? already on. What, who yes. To okay, it's a people, podcast. People, filthy people, at their desks, on treadmills, on oh, public geez. transportation. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, you sound good. Good. Anagastar. It's your big. It's the big fat. It is a big warm mic. Before I started recording, it was a joy to watch you on Twitter. You had a coffee stain on your shirt, and it became a Rorschach tweet off. Yeah, that's what I did. I I, I put out a, a a group Rorschach quiz. Clearly, you know so sad, clearly a dick. Some people think that they're wrong. It's so clearly a dick. There's no question. It's a big brown dick and balls. <laughs> but there were some fantastic answers. Really great answers. Yeah, I can't read them right now because my phone's charging across the room. But some bunch of people said it looked like a. Somebody looked like it, said it looked like an amputee who'd fallen off a Segway. Somebody Very said specific. It, <laughs> a bunch of people said the Statue of Liberty. Somebody said uh, fried chicken. Klingon warship. Klingon warship. Yep. Yeah. No, there were all kind of things. Somebody just said, no, it was kind of touching. The sun swallowing the moon. Kind of oh. And dark. Yeah. Oh, someone just saw like melancholia mm-hmm. or something. Somebody and saw just melancholia. Feeling, feeling saw pretty sad bad. Rorschach. <laughs> that's why it's called Rorschach. But all these people were like, right? And I'm like, it's not a quiz. That's I, why it's Rorschach. I like I like the cute teacher's pet one. Is that's a that's a season two pickup for Suburgatory or a box set? That's what they said. <laughs> a box set. I retweeted it. <laughs> they they won. They won. They won. That's, that's how what you, happens. That, that, Brown nosing pays people. <laughs> it really does. You know, at the core of it, uh, we as performers uh, just need validation in any form, and I will Don't retweet I that it. stuff too. Don't I know it. Um, where did you, where, are you, are you a Chicago, uh, what's, what's your comedy background? My comedy background? Yeah, where did you start, where did you start? The Groundlings, really. I went to Northwestern, so I started doing comedy to begin with in, you're right, in Chicago in college. Mm-hmm. Because I went to Northwestern, there's obviously a big improv scene there. And, um, just by proximity to the birthplace of improvisation. And, um, I, I joined a little improv you know, a, a, a big, it was a big deal at our college. And then after college, I came to Los Angeles on the advice of a very opinionated gay friend. And I came out here, um, but really with not, no real kind of focus to it. Just kind of like, okay, because he, he's here to see me. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'd done had a weird collegiate career because I, I, I came as a classical voice major to oh, Northwestern. Wow. Yeah, so... I had this like year and a half as a very serious musician. Then I bailed. I switched to the school of theater. And then I did like, there's this really like hardcore, almost performance art level uh, American director, Mary Zimmerman, who was getting her, she's like a MacArthur fellow. And um, I did a bunch of her shows and they're really like sort of cerebral high art theater. And then I did the Meow Show, which was this improv group. So I really didn't have like a big like, on camera plan or, or plan <laughs> at all, as it turns out. And, uh, and except for then my boss friend Peter said I had to move here. So I moved to LA. Um, and then I was, I did an improv. I got, you know, through the Northwestern community, I had auditions for some things and we would just kind of, you know, I'll bring a box of costumes and you get the barn and we'll put on the show kind of mentality coming out of that theater program. There's a real hustle to Northwestern actors. So people were always doing shows and stuff, but then I got an audition for some kind of, 
TV show involving improv and Kathy Griffin was at it and she was, um, we hung out all day cause it was like an all day kind of callback thing and we became friends and she was just super again, bossy with me. And she was like, you're an idiot <laughs> if you don't do the ground. And you were the one groundling she didn't sleep with. <laughs> yeah. We, we didn't sleep together. Uh, it's okay for we me to say. We talked about sex. We talked about sex, but she, she, it's okay for me to say that cause she would admit that. She would admit it. Yeah. She was, she's very, um, but she was just really like, you know, in that way when people are experts on things that you don't really know about. And I thought she was really cool and funny. And I went and checked out a bunch of groundling shows and the women, uh, um, kind of always, but because it's so character driven, the groundlings was like, at that time it was crazy. It was like Jennifer Coolidge and Mindy Sterling and, uh, Jennifer Joyce, Heather Morgan, uh, Lisa Kudrow, mm -hmm. like really good, uh, Mary Shear, funny, funny, funny women doing funny, funny things. Karen Mariama. So oh I, my God, I love Karen Mariama. super funny. And Kathy Griffin, obviously, was a, a regular... Um, I took a bunch of classes from Karen. Yeah, she's great. So I, I just, um, I kind of was really taken with it, and so I started taking classes at the Groundlings, and then I got cast in my first um, show, show, which was through the Annoyance Theater people at Chicago. I got mm -hmm. the, the Real Live Brady Bunch national tour. Yes! Oh, wait! I must have seen you in that. I don't know. Did you do it in L.A.? I didn't. Okay, then I did mm. not see you in that. I did the last. It was a big thing in the 90s. And we just did, uh, we just staged productions of episodes of The Brady Bunch. And uh, so I that was like my first real job. Like it was like we, we toured on a bus with Davy Jones, the late, may he rest in peace, Davy oh, Jones. Yeah. And um, did his episode and among others and just, you know, like made my first paycheck and, and lived on a van and did shows all the time. And so then, so then I got kind of like into the Groundlings whole comedy thing and just figured out I was you know, probably had a acumen for it, and and that's that's how I got Saturday Night Live and started working, got my agent, and everything. So yeah, and that was that was. Uh, I mean, it seems to it seems to flow in waves, but that was definitely a period of time where you know the the strongest SNL performers were coming out of the Groundlings. It yeah. was it was almost like it was almost like um, I don't know, like like uh, a preschool for Groundlings. Like that's, it was a really really fertile era. I mean, not even just SNL. There was you know Mad TV was on the sure. air at the time, and there were tons of Groundlings that went that way. From my particular group, um, we had you know Chris Parnell and me and um, Maya Rudolph. Shortly thereafter, Will Farrell and Sherry O'Terry preceded us, mm -hmm. and then we had uh, a bunch of writers: Stephen Craig and Scott Wainio, and you know, oh, uh, Mike, Mike McDonald was Mike McDonald. Uh, he was at the ground. He was at Mad TV. At yeah, Grandly's, Hitchcock yeah. was at Mad TV. Um, yeah, so it was just an incredibly fun, engaged, fertile group of comedic performers and writers, and you know that that begets itself. People get. It, you, you like to you write the most for your fellow comedians, you know. So you you write you write better when you're around good people. It's like tennis. There's really and there was really like a uh, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but there was a cult of groundlings kind mm. of a thing where you could, you know. And I never even really got that far into it because I think I just I don't know. I realized pretty quickly like yeah, I, I just like like stand up. I'm not I'm not a great. I'm not a great scene improviser well, in that know, way. And that's the essence. I was just talking because Tony Sepulveda is my husband, my, my, it's my, amazing. he's a, he's, a, he was my first director of the Groundlings and he's, um, he still teaches at the Groundlings, still teaches basic every Saturday. He's very committed to the organization and I live with him when I'm in LA. So, um, we talk about, you know, what the Groundlings brings to people and it's not always like the hippest necessarily. Like it's not got this like cool downtown edge it never has because we have wigs and glasses and you know it's just automatically kind of uncool but it's very um it's very acting based and it's very the scene work is really important and the early stages especially are really fundamental acting technique they're they're making eye contact and listening and replying and things that i mean i've done a lot of straight broadway shows now that have nothing to do with comedy and i can't believe how often even after 
you know, Northwestern training that I go back to my groundlings basics all the time. Yeah. And in writing too, you know. Well, and they also don't they they never they never appreciated it, at least in the classes that I took there, was like, stop being jokey. Yeah. This is not joke driven. This is yeah. scene driven. Yeah. Don't just try to, you know, yeah, hog the... Yeah, without being like all Meisner or something. But they, yeah, they just, they're really into like the, the honesty of the situation, telling the story. And of course, that's what great improvisation is, you know. Do you prefer sketch over improv or one over the other? Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I have to confess that I find... I do prefer sketch. I I, I, pre- I think you have more control with the written word. I mean, I still want it to be really free, and I love the process of writing, But and, and I'm a very collaborative writer. I'm not an independent writer at all. Um, I find improv to be a little bit indulgent. Like, now that I'm <laughs> older, I don't love watching other people do it all the time. But but the way that Growlings has a structure, it's very audience-driven. It's not particularly artsy-fartsy. They have, you know, a good director will black out quickly and get people moving on. Sure. You know what I mean? I, I, I kind of want to, this is, I should not say this in the world of hip comedy people, but like sitting through a Herald or like a long form anymore in the old days, I used to think it was the coolest thing in the world. I kind of want to kill myself a little bit. I find <laughs> it so obnoxious. Yeah. I, you know, I just, because whatever it's fun for. And I also just do find as a character actor that I, I much rather would like texture and detail about life you know, lifestyle or whatever than, you know, than, than just the intellect. Like, I feel like that kind of, that long form stuff starts to get so cerebral that I get, it just starts to be like a cool fest. There right. starts to be a cool problem. How long can we do this? Yeah. And it's just like, it's not really, it's not really acting. It's like, who's smartest. It's like, I grew up on the East coast. I know a lot, you know, that's like that Harvard thing, you know, but it's right. like all, all the, it's, it starts to be like Ivy league to me at a point. It's the uh, it's the comedian's equivalent of uh, dropping their big dick on the table. Sometimes, sometimes I mean, sometimes when you watch an incredible improviser, there's nothing more exciting, and you know, watching that brain at work. But but and and certainly there's there's millions of them, you know. But I'd almost rather watch that like in you know in stand up or in a long form, you know, kind of storytelling stand up or something like that, you yeah. know. And so did they, uh, was the, the SNL audition, was it just sort of a thing like, oh, all the groundlings are auditioning or did you have an agent or how did you, um, (laughs) (laughs) no boy, what can you imagine? Um, no, I came in. So the entire cast was more or less turned over in 1995. It was like one of those eras where the show had kind of run its course and it was reinventing itself. And, um, they did a small tweak in 1996 where they, so Molly Shannon and Sherry O'Terry had been hired in 95 and they just added a, they wanted to look at women and um, African-American men. So uh, Tracy Morgan and I were hired together in 96. So they, it was a very specific call. And honestly, I think it was Will Ferrell basically, because it's so friggin' clubby. <laughs> I think that he, they said to Will, who are the funny girls at the Groundlings? And he named like five of them. And I sent in a tape and they liked my tape. So, a, ta- a tape? Yeah. What it was, was like it? a, like, um, you know, like a best uh, of, like my best of characters. Or I don't know. I like cut together, edited something together. I was pretending I didn't know what a tape was because of the old days where you'd have to fucking make a VHS tape and VH send one. in yeah. and send in like a, you'd have to buy like 10 minute yeah. VHS tapes. Yeah. Because they were the cheapest. They were the cheapest. And then mail out the fucking and find pile somebody of tapes. Could edit. Like that was the whole deal. Like if you could find, you know, and then I remember there was a high screeching noise on one of the versions. We had to go back and redump it. You and know, then it's and, sort of like it's wavy mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. first because the tapes, like if, right. if it's too far at the beginning of the roll. Right. So oh then my they God. flew me out. Um, and then I did a live audition, obviously, in the studio. What was your audition? Um, I did, uh, well, again, thank God I had been in the Groundlings because I had, you know, I'd auditioned for Saturday Night Live. On the NBC, at the NBC level, which is in retrospect, I don't really know what it was, but I went in for someone at NBC in Burbank and, you know, I hadn't been in the Growlings yet, so I just didn't have the same 
by performing there, you have your go-to sketches. You know what things are hits. You're writing all the time when you're in the Sunday show. So I just cut together uh, my... This is a long-winded answer. I apologize. But No, not at all. Um, and just so people know, the Sunday show is a brand new show every Sunday. Yeah, it is. It's sort of the farm team, and it's in six-month... Um, sort of a six-month contract leading in. And the, the main stage company at the Groundlings does a, a review that is locked. It's a locked show, and it runs every three months or so they change it. And to get into the main company, someone either has to die or <laughs> give up their spot. Yeah, and they do. They do. Or you get bullied to do so for sure. other people. That's when I was at SNL. Sure. They were like, you got to go. There's some talented people. Get out of the way. <laughs> okay, so so you had, <laughs> um, you had this background, and then you have the audition in New York. Yeah, I did. Um, I did three hit things from the, the Groundlings, one of which was uh, that NPR lady. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I did, uh, another kind of crazy Midwestern lady. I can't remember what the character was. Um, and then I did, I'm trying to remember what my, I can't remember. It was a long time ago. I did Martha Stewart mm -hmm. and I did, but I wasn't, in, I'd never done impressions. So I, I just kind of, I'd always, I read her magazine and I kind of talked about doing a Martha Stewart sketch just because I, with a blonde wig, knew that we could kind of look alike. Sure. And, you know, again, because I grew up on the East Coast, there's all that sort of patrician access. And um, so I did that. And then I did Cokie Roberts from NPR. <laughs> it's like the most like unavailable <laughs> impression ever. Um, but again, my whole thing, because I'm not, I never consider myself an impressionist. I consider myself an actor. And if I happen to like figure out what I can kind of pull off of, of the impression you know i tried to just make the writing like really short and sweet and you know make the joke really strong so with so that you laugh and get out <laughs> fast so i did that and i'm trying to remember i had three characters but i can't remember what the third one is well it but there you know very few people i mean like bill Hader is an impressionist but everyone He's else great, yeah. but but other people snl sort of made this idea uh made this sort of culturally relevant that it's not that you were doing exact no. impressions you were you were sort of taking you were caricaturing yeah and sort and taking the subtext of or, or the, like the whatever finding the joke is like and and then channeling it i mean and certain people do more i mean daryl hammond is is a genius like he's a, a real savant his his ear hears the way people, i've heard him use words when you're writing that he would never ever use as himself but he like he changes his syntax to everything because he really understands how he sort of channels you yeah. know and jimmy fallon can do that too but i would say like more like molly's like lewinsky monica lewinsky she just had like a really great kind of energy around right. how monica lewinsky would be it was sort of made up in a way and also because not that many people really knew what monica lewinsky sounded like or looked like you know I mean, right. what she looked like but we didn't know like her nuances and things or so, carvey like he just yeah, took totally. the essence of a thing and then that became then yeah. made that yeah. relevant and then, and finding what's funny about just finding what's funny about the person yeah you know, i felt i always felt like i did that when people are like do you're celine dion you sound just like her i'm like i don't at all but i think i keyed into Lori Nasso, who wrote the sketch, actually, she was from Canada. And so she was well aware of Celine well before all of America had had her shoved down our throats. And that, <laughs> that, that Titanic song was just absolutely everywhere. And there was this kind of false modesty to it every time you saw her talk and just kind of hitting the kind of self-important cluelessness of that of that song. That That's what the sketch was about. You know what I mean? <laughs> so people like that's what resonates. And thankfully it's coming back because Titanic 3D. I'm so happy because who didn't miss that song? Seriously. <laughs> honestly. I I think we should bring back all songs with recorder riffs. Two things that I would say is number one, it'd be great if we could raise the Titanic and just make and have just redone all that. But we can't do that. So much art. Thankfully, Celine, uh, my heart will go on. 
we have access to it, and we can raise it from the ocean floor of our collective consciousness. And a little pan flute goes a long <laughs> just way. A li- just a skosh. Pan flute is the sax of the 90s. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because so, <laughs> I feel like sax took over the 70s in a way that was like all white people suddenly started playing the sax. But, but then and it then they, really they, got they, white in the 80s. And they really ruined the sax for a lot of people yep. thereafter. And that's what happened with pan flute. It the came pan in flute. in the 90s. Yep. And it was, I think it was, I think a lot of it had to do with Zamfir and all those late night. Yep, Yanni. Uh, Zamfir was one of those comedy buzzwords that for a period so for a period of like 10 years Let's bring it back. Yeah, for a period but maybe it's not right up there with beard cheese, Zamfir. Yeah. Like you if if you if you were if you were in a sketch you were watching a sketch and like they clearly didn't know where to go and they just want to say something where they'd go and Zamfir, master of the pamphlet. And it makes me laugh. Uh, you got me. Every time. It is true. It's a go-to. Garrett Top and Zamfir. Have you thought have you thought now about, you know, like resurrecting just characters that you like doing and just shooting a bunch of one-offs just for the oh, fuck I of it? I would love to. You know, I have to tell you, because I kind of put Saturday Night Live to bed for a long time because I went off this weird road less traveled and I did SNL. Um, I did Broadway and kind of like got away from it. And then I went back for that Betty White show that mm-hmm. they did and they brought a bunch of girls back, which was so great to like be with my... It is weird. I mean, I know you probably have had this experience with other comedians too, but... It's like we're all part of the same mutant club, you know? It's yeah. like you, because I have gone off and worked with very earnest, sincere, well trained actors who are a whole lot of fun, but there is nothing by compensation. You know, it's like you meet your the other people who can also also have webbed toes or something. Yeah. Like, and you know, and <laughs> you the, can breathe underwater too. Oh, and, cool. And the weird thing about having the comedy gene is that. You can tell within five seconds if someone else has has that thing where you're like, oh, okay, totally. you, you see the world in this kind of weird yes, way. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it and again, like my group of women in particular, a lot of you know, a lot of us are actresses, like that we play characters and we play, you know, we're not just like funny stand-ups, you know, but the, we, we right. you know, we're not that not just like that, but that's not really our strength. Our strength lies in like portraying character in a funny situation, I would say. Yeah. And um that that has made me kind of desire it more i would love like i would love if i could host and do some of those again i, I would love it love it love it love it love it but how is how is uh how is the business to women funny women is it shitty or is it not as is... it's such a conversation isn't it what's happening have i angered him no 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 that's nick he's the, he works over there for ryan seacrest oh nick is popping in to hear about funny women <laughs> i um, mean i because i i i feel like I have so many friends who, yeah. I mean, I don't really see like, dude, funny, lady, funny. I just see funny people. Yeah. And I feel like I see a lot of, I, I know shitloads of hilarious, amazing women. And yet I still feel weird that there's still a thing in our culture that's like, how come there's less funny women? Like, there's not. There's this- There's not. I do think it's changing by the second. I mean, as a person on Twitter and, you know, you start to follow all these kind of original you know, you, comedians tweet each other all the time, retweet each other. So I've, there is, it's really, that's been actually one of my favorite things about it is that you find this whole generation of women. I don't know these younger women, but you know, Megan Amram, like all these people that I follow that are so original and their brains are so weird and so funny. And, um, they're definitely a new, there's a confidence to those younger women, I would say, uh, cause they're all people in their twenties, thirties, you know, uh, 10 years younger than me at least. And it, I feel like it's, we're on the brink of a different generation for female. I mean, I, I, for, for opportunity for women yeah. comics. I agree with you that I think it's a really even playing field as far as um, talent and, and breadth. I do think there's absolutely no question that perception is still a huge 
you know, part of what we come up against. I mean, for example, our appearances still really matter and an annoying way where, where, whether or not you say, Oh, it does or it doesn't matter. It's still, it's still part of the conversation. Sure. People write about how we look right away. They compare how we look to one another all the time. They, you know, it, it's, it's not fair and it's not, you know, and the movie business, yes, bridesmaids was a huge breakout success that, no one will admit everyone thought was not going to be a huge breakout success because it was starring all women. And then when it was, it was like, Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. But I, I think it's still going to be a, a little bit of time before the development cycle catches up to the reality of what women can do on film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is that, is that sort of, was any of that related to, you said you sort of took this road less traveled and then like, yeah, you know, put completely, all the 100%. And- um, because, well, first of all, when you're in the mafia of SNL, you, you can't escape, you can't escape being a part of it. You know, you can't escape being compared to one another. You can't escape being, um, constantly sort of, it's sort it just becomes part of who you are. And I, and I guess I thought I could, and I, and I finally realized I didn't want to be separated from it. Like I really love doing comedy, but, um, yeah, yeah. I think that I, I, I wanted to get out of the game of what's going to happen with your career when you leave SNL. And, um, and I knew that if I, I, there's a huge amount of opportunity for women on Broadway because theater is a little less, uh, is is a little more aid, less ageist. I mean, it's a little more like you can kind of play whatever you want to play. Well, I think it's like Twitter. It's, I think there's a parallel. And like you say, these, these, these young women that you, that you're discover, there's a little bit more of a meritocracy in the sense that of like, well, talented people yeah. have to do these things. Yeah. And, and the funny people on Twitter, you're going to find out who they are because yep. they're funny. Because they're good at what they do. That's and in, true. And the old days, you really, you know, a comedy had, um, you know, two two outlets, three yeah. outlets, maybe yeah. film, television, and maybe stand up. Yeah. And that's how you would find out if people are funny. And now there's so many different ways to find out that it's it's just And then, I mean, Twitter is pretty much faceless. So you're just yeah. reading funny things and going, oh, that person. Is, oh, true. wow. Okay, great. It's true. And um, I agree with you 100%. And you have a lot of freedom. I mean, one of the fun things on Twitter is like people, you know, people have persona. Like they're, they're really like, they can have a, they can have a five separate identities. They can, you know, all these people, all these, you know, crazy, like I'm, I'm fake Jesus Christ, like right. So fun. You know, people <laughs> make up crazy personalities and tweet us those people. And you know, it's really fun to like play with the medium in and of itself that way. But anyway, yeah. So theater, I felt like I could kind of just get better at what I do um, in a kind of private way, strangely enough, even though it's very public, you're on stage every day. I always felt the safety of the fourth wall, not to be too arty. And I felt like I could just kind of go about my business and play really big, interesting roles, which I did, some of which were dramatic. And you just kind of get better at acting by doing it every day. I think, I hope. Well, it you know? sounds like that's that, that, and, and that's the fundamental, that's sort of the fundamental motivational difference as opposed to, I want to be famous. It's like, no, yeah. I really want to kind of just focus on my craft because this is what I love doing. Totally. And you, you just named, I mean, I was, I've always been really uncomfortable with that side of what I do. And SNL, that is the one thing that's really intense about it. For That was a big part of what was challenging at the show for me is the focus on, you know, because it is a huge national platform, you become famous in a different way right away by virtue of being on the show, which is an amazing thing and an amazing opportunity maker and, you know, a map maker and all of that. But I, I, I found it really overwhelming, especially when I first left the show. I felt like there was like a lot of pressure to sort of deliver on something. And I, I, I just it, I, it scared me. It really scared me. Well, it all, and also you 
you know, you, you go from doing groundlings where it's like, oh, you know, you're known in this community of people. Yeah. But now you could be anywhere in the country and someone will start shouting catchphrases at you. I sang the national anthem at the World yeah. Series. I don't know if you've ever heard me tell this story. but No. On, for the White Sox, when I was in Wicked, I, I was in Wicked in Chicago for uh, almost nine months, you know, and as Elphaba, they ask you to do things like sing the national anthem. And literally, it, like, World Series game, you know, walking out with my little Wicked t-shirt, getting ready to sing, which is pretty terrifying. How the fuck the do you stadium. even... That's... And I'm open my mouth to, you know, oh, right. Is that so booming? You know, as I, as I open my mouth and inhale, someone goes, sweaty balls. <laughs> During the so, national anthem. But you know what? I really have to say, I'm so, <laughs> it's funny because that, that week with the women, my peers, I mean, I couldn't be prouder to be affiliated with the pantheon of women at that show. And I'm very, very close to so many of them. And I feel like, I'm really proud of us. Like we're, we're, we're not only, I mean, I've talked about this with Molly Shannon so much, but not only are we all, did we all survive Saturday? I mean, you have to understand when I got hired at Saturday night live, literally like women would come up to you on the street and go, huh, good luck. Like it was considered such a, 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 just a complete like chew up and destroy system for women. Like there was, it was not thought that it was going to be an easy ride. So our crowd, like coming out of it, not only as having survived, but actually having, a lot to show for it. And, you know, but, but moreover, like we're married, we have kids, we have nice kids, we have good family, you know, like there's like a nice sense of kind of uh, well-adjustedness to the women that I, that I came out with, you know, and I'm really, I'm really psyched about that. I, I'm really proud of it. That's good. It's, it's nice to hear that side of it. It really is nice to hear that side of it. Cause I think that, you know, and, and maybe part of it is that, you know, because you, maybe because you dabbled in, you know, the sort of like show politics or doing a new show every week or, you know, like that sort of structure of the groundlings that mm. it really it feels like it might be a pretty similar structure to what it was Very at SNL. So. Yeah. D diving in and writing and doing your and taking care of yourself and making sure that, yeah, all of that. You, the groundlings was the best possible training for Saturday Night Live. No doubt. I have no I would never have survived. But also just being able to be nimble and like. I mean, just hear these stories of like five minutes before we're supposed to go on, the thing gets cut and then you're already, yeah. then you ha you're already in your thing. Well, have that to was the other thing about going back was realizing the multitude of, you know, like, I don't know how you, what your life is like in terms of you go home and you realize what, your weird anomalous set of skill set, you know, that you, skills that you've had <laughs> to survive your childhood. That's like SNL. You, like, you look around and you suddenly realize like, not only did I have to figure out an incredibly complex social landscape. Like, you know, the pitfalls of a 35 year workplace are huge. Cause it, no one ever really like, it's not like orientation day. Like you have to figure out like, don't do this or it will piss those people off. Right. Like you have to just do all that math on your own. So you have to have like a pretty high social IQ, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you also have to write. And then you also have to be able to figure out, you know, not how to, you know, how to mask your emotions so that you don't, you're not having a big drama queen on Saturday night when your sketch get cut, gets cut. Sure. And then you also have to figure out there's no like stage managers or ADs or anything. There's nobody running around saying like, um, okay, you're going to need to be in makeup by six fifty. You <laughs> like, um, uh, we would have to just sort of do it on our own. Like we would have to kind of just be like, Oh crap, I got to go start getting into just having a routine of your own, you know, your own little traffic pattern. I mean, it was funny. Maya and I were starving that Saturday with Betty, 
white. And she turned to me, she was like, I never figured out the fucking food thing here. And it's true. Like, it was exactly, we're sort of always hungry. There was no, there's no, it's not, it's a New York show. So it's not like these Hollywood shows with these craft services tables. There was like right. maybe a bowl of bananas. That was it. Like there, and, and, and for like a huge crew that's been there all day too. So. Mostly you just had to kind of order in and figure out when it would arrive and give somebody your credit card so that they paid for the salad. You know, it's like this kind of complex organism. I got to say, though, it I think in the zombie apocalypse, the 30 Rock building is one of the places that I would. You, it's Absolutely. A, it's a goddamn city. Absolutely. Like that whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you when you walk Super into the basement, safe. it's like, I know. oh, my God, there's like 20 restaurants and nice ones and fast yeah, food and a right. fucking GameStop and a I Starbucks. Know. Like, what? You don't need to go anywhere. You On just live in that building. On the other hand, some of the zombies already have infiltrated Saturday oh, Night Live. Oh, shit. You should tell someone. <laughs> what are we doing so, here? Yeah. yeah. We have to warn them. Yeah. I would probably stay out of any of the out of the Broadway video <laughs> studios. That's where that's where it all happens. Yeah. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. It that's is. It's pretty palpable. It's crazy. I've been uh, I went to I've only been to one SNL taping and it was only recently. It was just last Isn't last it season. So thrilling. It was unbelievable because I got to I got this I got the snotty access. So I like I like the green room attached to Lauren's yeah, yeah. office. So then you can kind of go out on his and all the beers everywhere like, on, on drinks, his like, weird balcony yeah, yeah. and like just stare over people and watch the fucking show. I know. It's like that's, that's it's so it. adrenal, right? I, I mean, like uh, you are. I mean, it's really contagiously unbelievable. Well, to the be show in that itself is a famous person. The show itself, the set, everything, because it's so a part of anyone. Your lexicon. Of I know. course it I is. Know. I know. You know, I mean, I, I, I've been, I watched SNL from, you know, the from the when it started. My yeah. parents let me watch SNL, I and I barely knew. Molly and I were friendly. Like we'd done a couple little jobs and stuff together here in LA. And, and so I was w writing on something in New York when she was on the show the year before I actually got cast. Maybe it was a year and a half before because she started sort of in a weird off middle of the season time. And I don't know how it came to pass, but she got me tickets to dress and the party. And I, rem I mean, I literally didn't sleep for like four days thereafter. It was so intoxicating. Just the experience, like you described something about, you know, the speed when you're in that live studio, like people sit at home and they don't realize like while they're, you know, during those commercials for Coles, like there's literally, right. so, you know, someone tearing across a studio in a bald cap, you know, like trying to get, it's so unbelievable. It probably feels a lot like what vaudeville would have felt like yeah. of just people running. Where's my fucking thing. Give yep. me that thing. Go, yep. We got to go on. You're on, yep. you're on, you're on. Oh, I love it. I loved it so much. I mean, that part of it was so fun. I had a wardrobe malfunction during the Betty White show that was so insane where you won't understand this because you're not a woman, but there's these dresses that have, they're like, they have like a built-in lining or like a sort of, so they're not too see-through. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if they're not sewn properly, the lining can get separated. And okay. if, if you step into the dress, it's like you're short-sheeting yourself. Okay, you know okay, I mean? yeah. Okay, so there was, there was uh, the Manuel Ortiz sketch. And, you know, the whole premise is like Fred Armisen's sketch. And so, uh, you know, people come out and they're on for sure. like two seconds. And I... Um, they had done something to this dress between dress and air. And it was such a successful week. Like I hadn't had any expectations of even really doing anything on the show. And then I'd called up Steve Higgins and said, do you want me to write an NPR? And he was like, yeah, totally. So it, was, it all kind of came as a surprise. I wrote it, you know, they helped me finish it. It was so great. Then it opened the show. Like every, I got to be with Molly again. I got to be with Maya. I mean, it was all of it was like, you know, all of my girlfriends. And um, it was such a great week. And, I'd gotten through like the first two big things and that was the third thing. And I'm running 
It was a really fast change out of the NPR character under the bleachers. Like half of the studio audience could see me. And I stepped into the dress and it was wrong. And I took it off. And this wasn't my, like when you do the show, you have your pit crew, yeah. you have people that you've work with every week, but this was not like my normal team of dressers or I didn't really, you know, plus it's like an old muscle. I haven't done, I've been on the show for eight years, you know, so I'm like trying to remember how to do all this and um, switch gears so quickly. I step into the dress, I step out, I'm like, fine, fine, fine. And I, all this stuff starts to kick back in. I'm like, fine, change the shoes to get my wig off. Like, so now, so now I'm standing in a bald cap, a pair of pantyhose, a strapless <laughs> bra and a pair Shit. of pumps. I step back into the dress. I can't get into the dress. My dresser starts to lose her shit because it's really getting bad. Like they're calling 30 seconds. Oh, we're getting shit. closer and closer. And in my mind, I'm like, this is so me. Like, I'm going to come back, have this amazing week. Have you get to do this like incredible? Cause I never thought we would get to do NPR again because sweaty balls became to be so, such a big thing sure. that they'll never let us do it again because it's so kind of sacred now, mm -hmm. but, but they let us do the muffin sketch and she was so great about it. It was so fun. And Molly and I had so much fun. Anyway, I'm like, I am going to have to walk on stage in a pair of fucking pantyhose, a strapless bra, and a bald cap. Like this, is, And it's live. I have no choice in the matter. I look up, and my hairdresser has t pulled off her T-shirt, and she's standing there in her bra now, <laughs> aggressively, oh. holding up. She's like, wear this, wear this, like this lot. And then I'm like, I'm going to walk on stage in a T-shirt and a pantyhose. You know, like, like, and the girl who is trying to put the dress back together is screaming at this point like a wild animal. In this, in the, and, and now it's gone to 20 seconds. And the studio's getting quieter. The band has stopped playing. And she's literally going, <laughs> like, like a crazy. And I remember some of the mom and me kicked in. I was like, okay, that's not helpful. You need to not scream like that because that's not helping us. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. Just going to this place. And then finally, Donna, who is the star dresser, she always dresses the, the host. Yeah. She had finished Betty and she, um, she came over. I don't know what she did, but she she yanked that thing on. So I'm only wearing, if you ever go back and look at it on a Hulu, it's just the slip. So the whole, it was like, and I didn't know if it was going to be like, you know, long or shorter. So the under part of the dress and then the side of the dress is just like a scarf attachment, which is the actual dress. Okay. So it looks sort of like a scarf, scarf attachment. Anyway, and then I had to go on and do that stupid dance <laughs> that Manuel oh, Ortiz man. does. So I was literally, I was high when we pulled that off. No, because the sketch had started. That's right. And they pulled it on. She like jams a pin into the side and sort of hail marries me. And, and Jenna, the stage manager came, comes up and she said, I told Maya to vamp. And I'm thinking like, you can't vamp. Like you have one line in this sketch. The whole premise of the sketch is you say a line and then the music starts and people start dancing. Like that's the whole joke. So anyway, I went, it turned out to be so funny but I was like, high, I mean, the whole, I was high for like a day and a half. That that's amazing. I mean, yeah. and, and that, I mean, obviously that could go horribly wrong, but when it goes right. It's so intoxicating. I know. I saw some girl on the subway like weeks later and she was like, I was at the Betty White show. I said, oh, wow, that's amazing. She goes, I saw that thing happen with oh, your dress. Shit. Like she looked totally traumatized. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like seeing me standing in my underwear, just like, uh, well, you know. Well, what you're describing is one of the ultimate and I don't mean this figuratively, literal nightmares that people have where they go, You're absolutely right. I'm about to be on live television in front of millions of people and I'm not wearing any clothes yep. and I'm going to look ridiculous right. and not in the way that I want to. And not in a good way, not in a yeah. naked good way. No, it's funny, you know, they say, like people always have their, like, I no longer have the getting ready for the exam t dream that sure. everybody has like for your whole life because they say you go back to the most intense 
time in your life and those are the that's what creates an anxiety dream mm -hmm. and whenever i'm going through a lot i'm always having a studio 8h dream always like I, whenever i'm like things are a new show or with suburgatory starting out and things you know just busy traveling a lot i always have the dream of like my vision is clouded and i can't see the cue cards or i'm this the you know the monologue starting and i'm supposed to be in it and i didn't know it or you know this, it's all of that like because i think you, you handle it with such grace while you're there and you don't screw up but then the anxiety of what if you had is always sort of laying behind you. Like well, not everyone handles it. Not everyone handles it well. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very specific. It's a it's a handful of people. Well, anyone who survives the show. I mean, anyone who's on the show for more than a season has learned how to navigate. You know, not getting, you know, having a public nervous breakdown. Right. Because you really could. I mean, you could literally like any week. It could be like a scene from a movie. It could be network. You know. Yeah. <laughs> That's not, not gonna take. I've only ever seen. I mean, with the exception of, with the exception of, you know, like when people kind of break a little bit and laugh in mm -hmm. scenes, which is which is different. I've only ever seen one time a psychic break. <laughs> not a break. Actually, it wasn't even bad. It was totally. It was totally funny. But I've never seen anyone break the wall before, except for Eddie Murphy, who I, it was during. I don't remember what the sketch was, but. People He's were laughing crazy. or something was going on and he just turned around in the audience and he was and it was it was it was comedy anger. It was like, Will you guys keep it down? This is live television. Oh my god. And then he went back into the scene and they loved it. Yeah. Yeah, and they loved it. But yeah. I can't, you know, you really can't break that wall. You're just No, it's sort of and I mean, yeah, it's sort of artificial. You can't you can't. I mean, th there's so many times that we're so that but again, the community of that is so fun. I mean, I remember Paula Pell on the floor. My friend Stephen Craig was it was his first sketch he got on the air. We wrote a Dr. Laura sketch. Mm -hmm. And it was at 10 to 1. And you know, again, my crew was so good. Everybody when I was on the show, I was there during like an amazing era for the show. So we always went in long. We never ever started dress without at least eight minutes over, which meant that if you were anywhere on the back third of the lineup, you were probably, you know, you were within terrible danger of getting cut. Because mm -hmm. as soon as the show runs live there's a lot of laughs it starts to spread you know you're you're losing sketches by the second you know and uh we i don't know how they did it so they, these writers are running around they're being told you know hold on to your pages like because keep cutting 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 people always criticize cue cards on the show but the reason that they they have them is for this reason because sketches are getting cut midair and they're internally getting cut so you're someone will run up to you and say you have to lose two and a half pages now yeah. if you want this thing so they're sitting there like ha there are certain people Matt Piedmont who directed Casa de Mi Padre he's incredibly good like you would start to know who on the floor on Saturday would be like he's just got a great editorial eye he can just go like you could do this do this joke do this you can add this you can you know like it's a talent and it's thrilling I kind of love that stuff um, anyway, Stephen Craig tells this story of his first sketch and they're like, you better heads up, heads up, heads up. And they're collapsing acts. They're losing sketches left and right. We're still going to make it. But they had to cut two and a half pages while the sketch was airing. Oh, shit. So Paula Pell and Stephen Craig, I'll never forget because the stage manager came up. This is an extreme example, but it, it did happen where she would come up and say like, eyes on the cards, there are live changes. So while I'm reading the cue card in front of me, I could see in my peripheral vision the writers on the floor with the cue card department with pages, like cutting and yelling, and they're ta and a tape. They're like taping off and they're retaping. They're just getting rid of huge chunks of the sketch as we're going. It's just crazy. Well, and I think also if people understand that, they might be a little more forgiving sometimes if you have a host yeah. who 
where you you know because people bitch about it all the time. Yeah, well, you me. you I would know. see you would see a host and go, oh well, he's clearly reading off a cue card. Like, yeah, well, he might just be seeing that for the first time. I know, right and now. exactly. And I, they always say like, well, you're you guys never read the cue cards. We you do. You're all, everybody's reading them. You just get better or worse at it. You know. You can figure out how to. Are you are you a, are, are you pretty good with like you know seeing a page and then going, I got it. Well, again, if you. Again, if it's your territory, it's like anything. It's easy. you know, if I wrote the sketch or I was in the room while the sketch was being written, I'm more inclined to remember it. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. where we're going, and I'm not as ner- nervous about paraphrasing. Like as I, you know, like if you're reading somebody else's thing, you feel like, oh, I can't yeah. put words in their mouth or you know that kind of thing. Was there was there a sketch or something in particular that caught on, or just some catchphrase or something where you just didn't see it coming? Where you're like, that was the thing that caught on. I thought it would be this That's other a thing. Good question. Um, I always just find with stand up, like you can you you think Twitter's you totally you think you know me. where the hits are, and then you're like, oh, that wasn't a hit at all. Oh, it's this other thing that I didn't even. Yeah, I mean, I do. I have to say, with for me, Twitter's been so great and liberating that way because almost every time I've just been like second nature around it. The, those are the things that retweet like 150 times that mm-hmm. you're like, what really? Oh, you know, but the things that you think, oh, I've got a funny, you know, and, you, and you're like, and sand. Wait till the know, world then, gets a hold of this like, one. Just like crickets as you're looking at your little interactions, you know, cable. Um, there, yeah, I would say Celine Dion was for sure. Um, I, not that I personally didn't think it would catch on, but it was not a particularly beloved uh, in a way where it was just kind of like, oh yeah, well Anna has that this week thing, and and I think that it really was in the zeitgeist in a way, truly where the show shines and does its best. Where, for whatever reasons, more than we even knew, America, it was just that very moment. We in needed time. to deal with yeah, her. We exactly. needed a it was vessel. Like we were ready. Yeah, <laughs> we needed. Every America was ready to really let it because uh, as soon as you know, in the old days, like we would, it was pre. It was pre-TiVo. That's how weird, like, technology is since yeah. then. And, I, you know, you, the barometer would be you would go to breakfast, you know, or brunch or whatever in Soho, and I would be like, everybody would be talking about the sketch. I could hear people talking about it. Oh, wow. um, NPR, I knew, was a very... I had done it at the Groundlings. I'd written it with a, a girl there. And, and um, it, we had had a lot of... You know, it had been a popular sh- sh- sketch in the Groundlings show, a Sunday show. Um so I kind of knew that this, I knew that the awkwardness and the pauses played, but it was a really quiet sketch for SNL territory. And I'm, I'm no, I know nobody ever said this, but I know that they, they threw that to me as a bone. I mean, I did not think that no one expected that sketch to play. No one expect, expected that to, you know, they were like, yeah, let's try it. You know, it was in a really, you come to know kind of the politics of the time slots of, of SNL. Of course, like the last day. Yeah. yeah, it was buried a little bit in the dress and, you know, it, it just wasn't. And I think everybody was just delighted when it did it as well as it did. Well, that's why, you know, like I, I like when you I like your reference of like the 10 to 1 yeah. slot where it's 10 minutes before the show's over. Yeah. And, you know, what's what's sort of a little magical about that slot is that first they if take some, risks, they take risks. And if something works there, I mean, I've always yeah. thought of it as like yeah. this is the workshop section. Mm-hmm. If something works there, mm-hmm. it's already fighting upstream because people have been watching the show for almost an hour and that's a half. Right. And so for something to work there, there really has to be something special about it. That's right. Because it's easy. I mean, not that it's easier, but but there's a little bit more of the table is set at the top of the show. The yeah. energy's fresh. Yeah. Everyone's excited, you know. 
But near the end, if you can make something fly, it's like, all right, there's something, there's yeah, something there. And usually it's like the more absurdist stuff or whatever. But actually the other thing like that was Bobby and Marty, the thing I did with Will, um, because it, it, you know, I think people thought it was kind of hacky, like sort of like a medley bit, Sweeney Sisters kind of thing. And, sure. you know, not, 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 not in a bad way, but just like it, it started that way. But then really what was so fun about them was the the horrible personal stories that they would share right. and they were super passive aggressive and they were constantly belying just their gross marriage and, you know, all kind of earthy facts about them and stuff like that. And, and that's actually what ended up being so fun to write. I mean, of course it's fun to make fun of like the latest Jay-Z song, like a white lady singing it, but it was also even the really, you know, the good times we would have would be the, you know, whatever, wherever they'd created enemies, you know, yeah. and, and, and become the pariah of the situation they were in. And, um, they, I think, you know, I, Adam McKay was a head writer at the time. I think, you know, he was kind of like, eh, I kind of think it's a medley bit. But then um, Helen Hunt hosted, and I think it was my second season, and we'd done a Christmas caroling one. And it was maybe only like the second or third time, but it probably honestly would have died a little kind of get rid of this old this old chestnut death, you know, which happens. It's the sketches run two or three times. It's run its course. It was done. And they had a cold open, a political cold open bomb. I mean, it was like a flat line oh, no. <laughs> during dress. And I don't remember what, it was, what the topic was. And Helen Hunt, evidently, uh, Mike Shoemaker told me later, one of our producers, that in the meeting in between dress and air where they were trying to pick stuff, Helen Hunt turned to everybody and said, um, I know this sounds crazy, but why don't we put Bobby and Marty there? It's topical. It's about Christmas. And everybody was like, yeah, that could work. That could fit. That's perfect. It's the right length. Nice job, Helen Hunt. Thank you, Helen Hunt. I'd like to thank you. But, you know, <laughs> but by by placing it conversely at the opening of the show and proving that it could sail at the opening of the show, and, and actually most of it was dialogue and it wasn't as sung, it's what kind of turned it around in the terms of, you know, its place in kind of the show's history. Wow. It's crazy, right? That Helen Hunt... Who knew? Gave us. Today. It's, today. I Let's always, three cheers her. Do you feel like, um, well, I, two things I want to ask. First of all, uh, do you feel like that experience in SNL, because you're always on the, I mean, you're really, it's, you're, you're walking a tightrope. You're constantly, potentially on the verge of death in some people's eyes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. you're Wait, whose eyes? You. you your you, eyes? Uh, you. You're constantly, <laughs> you're constantly, as a performer on that show, yeah. you're doing a live show, you're constantly sort of on the verge of death. And that's one of the exciting things about watching it is like, you know, can these people keep it together no matter what? Did that make you a calmer person? Because you're like, eh, just like in the situation when the dress didn't fit and you're sort of like, eh, you know, I don't know. Whatever um, did that? Did that? Did that kind of inform how you came out of that show, able to sort of handle the rest of the world? Wow, I've never honestly. I think while I was there, no. I think I was an, I was a psychotic, you know, psychological basket case. But um, yes, absolutely. In every other situation, there are very few things that throw me as a performer. Um, I, I would say, I really. I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't, what I learned is it's not worth it to, to, to get tied up in knots because you get in your own way and you, and, and also ever since then, every other form, every other form of work, you have time to perfect. But so, I'm also wondering like as a parent or in your life, like, do you just, are you able to not, well, that's a good question. you know, kind of go like, ah, you know, it'll just like on the show, you're sort of trained, like it'll all work out. 
you know, we can freak out or not freak you know, out. It's, it's going to work out. My husband always says, because we have this stupid thing where he's got Hans the um, parking ferry. <laughs> so, you know, he's literally like when you're going somewhere and you're like, well, wait, should we, you know, look for a spot? He's like, no, I've got Hans. And we'll pull up and he does. Hans is right there. It's like, and every time we get a parking space. Has, and your husband has this weird says, German I, I, We have parking? a German parking ferry. And he always says, you know, he always says, danke, danke schön, Hans. Danke schön, Hans. And we get out of the car. Danke, Hans. Kein uh, Dank. And we leave. <laughs> okay. So he, the other day he was like, you don't have Hans. He's like, but you too have this weird last minute fairy. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you know, like, I'll always think there's no way we'll get a reservation at that restaurant because it's Thursday. And then I'm, my husband will say, is saying this and I, Anna Gasteyer is always saying, sure, we'll get it. And I call and I just, I am pretty good at like, it's what you just described. And I think it probably does have to do with that. I was just kind of like, eh, we'll figure it out. And, it yeah. is a weird training, you know, like, uh, like that kind of a show is a weird training that only a handful of people in the world will ever have in their lives. Yeah, it's and super mutant anomalous. There's not a lot of application for the gift. There's really not. I mean, we used Isaac Cheryl Hardwick, who was our musical director sure. for years and years no, and years. I don't think any relation to me, but I've heard her. I mean, I know I've seen her name She's in the credits the for coolest. years. She is the coolest. She was married to Michael O'Donoghue years and years and years ago. The first, you know. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Head writer for the show. And she's, she's a lovely human being remarried now. Just really cool. Anyway, she was she was always just like, I have this amazing skill where I can write a jingle in 15 minutes <laughs> and record it in 24 hours, which back in the day before all this equipment that we have was no mean feat. I mean, they would have a like recording studio and cut and edit, you know, like a whole orchestra. Like literally cutting tape. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was crazy, right? I mean, in the old days, we would literally stay up till five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. Those Bobby and Marty's every single to uh, Wednesday morning, every, every single week we'd write. We'd end up calling her on her answering machine. It would be like a bunch of drunks because you'd be calling at six o'clock and we'd be deliriously tired. <laughs> be like, hey, Cheryl. So, I mean, the number of times I would leave her because I sang a lot on the show and be like, we're writing a song and it's um, it's a Thanksgiving anthem to turkeys, okay? And it's going to go like, <laughs> I love her. Okay, anyway, I'll see you. You know, whatever it is, it'd just be crazy. And then you would get to the read through two hours later and there'd be a piece of music written. Yeah. You know? And she was like, I have this freak skill that has no application anywhere else in the entire music industry. A <laughs> hundred years know? ago, yeah. what would she have done? I know. I know. So there is something to be said about that. Yeah, I guess I guess I have more faith in humankind. I just, there, I never felt, I wish going back, because Will is the only performer I really know that truly relaxed. And I think Kristen Wiig is like this now, because she's so seasoned there and so beloved. I think... Um, Will was, during my era, just could really enjoy a sketch, could really settle in, could have a great time. Like, now when I watch my work, I wish I had the hindsight that I deserve to enjoy it. You know what I mean? But I was so afraid of failure while I was there, of not, of my, my ultimate win while I was on the show was not failing. Do you feel like you, that maybe superstitiously or whatever reason you felt like that drove you? I guess, in other words, if if there are young performers who are listening and who constantly just destroy themselves every time they do something, well, like what advice could you give? Something very interesting has happened, and that this year on Suburgatory, I mean, whether or not you think that I'm good on it, who knows? That's up to you. But I have really um, something about the workplace of Suburgatory from the very beginning. I have just never, I've just decided never to question what's happening and never to question the writing, never to get caught up in worrying about the outcome and just having a good time doing it. And it's totally for me, like it's, it's created the best work 
experience for me I think I've ever had because I'm really just having fun doing Good. what I'm doing. You know, it's weird. And it kind of begets itself because you get in the mood for it and then the writers write to it because you're not constantly like dissecting it and being afraid and how could I improve upon this and will I look stupid doing this and just kind of, in, I, I don't know, like, it's so I think hard. maybe all the theater helped me do that or something. It's but. hard to really get your brain out of the way sometimes and just yes, kind of go like self-talk because you're like oh I have to do this thing and it has to be funny and then people have to like it why well so that it'll be fun <laughs> well is it fun I, I don't yes this is fun uh, I love my career uh, I love making people laugh. you start like twitching I know and it's exactly right and I think the more to the young people's thing the more you can just let that go and and not really worry you know it's a long career like not worrying about the outcome so much it's just it it, it always makes for better work i don't know you can, I, I and just as a as a hardcore comedy nerd i could always i could always tell on the show who who came from an acting background a sketch background and who came from like a stand up background mm. or who the the the, the more stand up oriented people a lot of times and 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 it became the charming part of their character work was always like Look at this crazy character I'm doing. Yeah. I'm doing a character. Yeah, I yeah. might laugh in a sketch. And then the people who were just hardcore, like act, like you know, people like you and Will uh, uh, Farrell would it just di- would just disappear into the character, and there was never any question. It was never like, oh, that's you know, that's that person playing characters like that. That they're doing. That's the character. Yeah, that's nice to hear. I mean, I definitely loved it, and I love transforming, and I mean, that's that's what's fun for me. That's what I like doing the best, you know. And I love working with. He's amazing because he really he he is such a he's like a Zen master of what he does. He sort of defies. I don't know him. I've never met Will Ferrell, but from everything I've heard about him, he sort of he defies the traditional conventions of what an actor or a comedy person is in the sense that they're like, hey, he's like totally relaxed, kind of nice he's guy. He's like the most, con- <laughs> yeah, he just really, I mean, he was the first person I learned to um, kind of get off on bombing from because he really, he like digs in. He loves it. He like doubles down if he knows it is, <laughs> and he, he thinks it's funny. Like that's what's so great about him because he just truly is like, wow, this is, this is really tanking. You know, like he'll kind of, he would walk off, you know, if it was like a dead dress sketch and he'd be like, I really stunk up the barn, you know, like as he's like walking. And it was just there again, because I, I'm sort of an A student and I'm a girl. And, you know, I had that like as described, I really it mattered to me. Like I want I didn't care so much about the audience liking me or not, but I just I, I never wanted to fail. Like I never wanted to ruin right. anything, you know, the very Tracy Flick kind of. Uh... I have a lot of Tracy Flick in me. Yeah, I think <laughs> a lot of comedy girls do. It's hard not to, you know. Why do you think that is? Do you think because there it, there seems to be more scrutiny over um, I don't know why, actually. I, th- I think it probably comes more from being like smarty girls that that's, you know, this is my whole thing about girls looks in comedy because there's like this huge conversation lately. There've been all these fucking articles about the way different women look, which sure. in comedy, which makes me crazy because the thing that makes me crazy is like, we're kind of weird because we, we, we were all like the funny best friend. Like even the prettiest girl in comedy was not the hot. You don't become a comedian because you're hot. Right. You know, that's not like where it comes from. Funny girls are funny because they're, they're weird. Right. You know, and, and they have to like, so then all of a sudden it's weird because then you're on TV and we're all reasonably attractive and, you know, can get our hair done and makeup and look nice. But like, it's never been our bag. You know, so then all of a sudden we have to go and that matters. And it's sort of like a weird suit to put on. Well, not only that, but I would imagine you probably rebelled against and probably hated the the snotty 
like hot high school girl. Yeah. And there's like, well, I don't want to be that. Why would I want to try to be that? It's a really weird conundrum. Yeah, exactly. Because you're like wearing the popular girl outfit. <laughs> oh, it's weird. It's it, it, it's, got, it's gotta be it's gotta be weird to all of a sudden. I mean, I mean, obviously it's not all of a sudden. It took years of work. I right. mean, you you sort of earned it. It's not just like someone just handed it to you, and you really did earn it. Like you fucking earned it. Oh, and because you 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 you, you years of training before even even getting to that point, and then yeah. years of doing the show. It's yeah. like. You know, no one would just give that to you and you wouldn't be able to sustain it if you didn't deserve it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and but then all of a sudden you. you're the popular one in the room and it's like, oh, I never liked those people. I don't want to. <laughs> uh, that, I think yeah. that's why comedians and, and, and especially Fallon, the thing I noticed about Jimmy is the first season of his show, because he's such a nice guy and because he's such a sweetheart and he never wants to seem like the popular asshole guy, yeah. he was always, I think, to a little bit of a fault, would always be like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm horrible, you're awesome, I'm horrible, you're wonderful. And then he finally got more comfortable, yeah. like, oh, he, you know, he is really good and he has He's earned really it. really good at what he does, and, yeah. But it's just the, it's, it's it's that reflex of like well, I don't be, I'm not popular. What are you talking about? I'm a piece yeah, of shit. Yeah, oh. and also comedians are. I mean, it's you know this because of what you do. But we the, we are constant. This is the mutant gene. You are doing what you're doing, and you're watching yourself do what you do. That's just what comedians do by nature. Mm -hmm. We are always observing. Most people, like on Saturday Night Live, inter interviewers would always say, almost all of my peers would agree with this, I think. They would say, were you the class clown? And almost all of us would say, absolutely not. I was the person in the back row making the wise-ass comments. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? There's a difference between the class clown and the person who's, like, ripping them very subtly because they're watching and observing what's happening and they're careful about it. And I would, whenever I start a Broadway show or, you know, theater show or whatever, and even with the smartest people in the world, I'll be rehearsing, even if a comedy. And I would come home the first week and my husband will say, well, how's it going? And I'll say like, oh, things happening where, I don't know, no, make, landing a lot of funnies and nobody's laughing. <laughs> you know, feeling like kind of like nobody's relating yeah. to me. And he's like, that's because they're not funny people. Like you're, they're just, rehearsing they're doing what they're supposed to be doing <laughs> and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing but you're also making jokes about it and they don't they can't do both the, at the web same the time. web the web toe gene you cannot hang out with non-web you cannot it is hard to hang out with non-web toes for too long because eventually you will say something which would have sent your comedic friends either yep. into fits of laughter or they would say something more way more offensive yep uh and then regular people just don't know what to do with they it look it's, at you they're uncomfortable they take it seriously like, they answer like, seriously when you make some kind of dry remark it's like handing a microwave to a dog, <laughs> and then the dog just kind of like cocks its head, like, well, I don't know what to do with this. I know. What am I, I supposed know. to do with this? And they really, and they're like, I, why would you even want me to have a microwave? <laughs> uh, tell, me, uh, tell, me if, tell me if this is, I feel like only comedians understand this, of, 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 of this reaction from other people in your life when you say something and they're just like, okay. <laughs> like, it's just that sort of, they just don't know what to do with it. Oh, it's the worst. Or just answering very literally bad. Like, my, my husband's actually super funny and, and, and very much has a comedic mind. And we were out with people and we were riffing on something, my husband and I, back and forth. And then he said, <laughs> and he said, um, please don't repeat that because I'm going to be running for office. And it was just like a stupid joke. And like four people at the table stopped and said, like, seriously, you're considering a run. <laughs> In this way, that, and then it would just, we ruined everything. So we're like, no, he's, why do you think it's funny when people run? Oh, the no, 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 the no, comedy no. couple had to make it about themselves <laughs> for a minute. They just had to make it about themselves. <laughs>
<laughs> Super self Ha ha. It's I funny. Know. You know, you don't always have to be funny. People will just like you for you. Like, oh, oh God. God, please. He, stop. he tells this great story because he works <laughs> in advertising in like a big company. And he went to, when he first started doing real jobs, <laughs> he'd only been like, he had a, he'd been a graphic designer. And then he was like, basically like a hangabout Saturday night live husband. Mm -hmm. And then he went back and got his MBA and then he worked in a corporation. And there was the first like retreat and they were going around just revealing a little something about themselves. And meanwhile, like we hang out with like Will Ferrell and, you know, Paul Appel. And this is all people like when we're back at SNL who, you know. I, I know more about those people than anyone should ever know. Like, you know, when a writer's night, the co comedians are constantly revealing, like, I have a, you know, treble clef shaped freckle on my ass, you know, with yeah. weird specifics. Anyway, so very corporate group of people. And my husband goes, hi, I'm Charlie. And I don't, I haven't used shampoo for 11 years, which again, <laughs> like in our circle, perfectly appropriate thing to share. You know, people be like, really? Like, wow, your hair guys grew in so great. You know, like all the actor people. Anyway, this group of corporate people, he said it was like the absolute, it was, it was like completely silent and everybody just looked really uncomfortable and looked down at their shoes. <laughs> It's super embarrassing. Oh, you know, it's so funny. It's like, you know, you, 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 people, people, I think, assume that comedy is this sentient force and it's not. No. It needs context. Otherwise, people just don't. They just they're like, oh, that guy's weird. Yeah, they were like, uh, this yeah. one fucking guy. His hair must smell. How the you fuck? Know? The people get mad about that. Yeah. And they'll talk to their wives like, how the fuck do you even do that? <laughs> 11 years? No, not even. I mean, seriously, at least like our, our circle would be like, really? Do you use like hot water? Or how do you? And they'll just like get right into it. But he said nobody even asked anything, which was even more embarrassing. And was he afraid but, to backpedal because he didn't want to? Yeah, he said it was quiet for a long time. And then somebody went like, hi, um, I love stone fruit. You know, it just like went to some really <laughs> generic... I'm Andrea. And, and then he, said, and then he uh, totally could have, when she said that, he could have been like, Frank, <laughs> just heckled her. Whatever, just the most general, you know. Well, I think it's good. And, and going back to your earlier point about class clowns, class clowns peak early. Mm -hmm. They peak early. I don't think class they're clowns. They're like prom king and queen. Yeah. You know, or, or, or quarterback of the football team. Yeah. And then they're just kind of the guy in the office who's like, oh, yeah, old Jake Hofstetter. He's a card. Yeah. yeah. They become a card. Or they're, you're, you know, yeah, they are. Or they're, the, or they're doing, you know, stand up at. Just kind of watching. Fridays. Yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, Tony Romas. That's what I was trying to think of. Do, do they do stand up at Tony Romas? <laughs> I don't know. I one time went. Um, Tickle your ribs. I, I went dancing at Tony. Tickle your ribs. See? There you go. That you, your husband can use that in his advertising job if he wants. <laughs> if he wants to land the Romans account. L listen, I'm sure he would. Okay. I'm sure he would. <laughs> I apologize. No, I, no problem. It's uh, you know the one thing I apologize to what other comedians no, is doing is just bad puns. Why did you apologize? Puns. You know what I did yesterday on Twitter, which I I actually almost apologized, but then I just let it go. What? I said Twitter is one big pithy party, <laughs> and then I was embarrassed for myself. But I let it go. I think people appreciate about that. About 25 people retweeted it. Oh, let's see. <laughs> not bad, not bad. No, that's good. Not oh, bad. you have a sliding scale in your head? Like, nah, one to 25, okay. I don't, I, I barely go over 50. I'm not, I'm not, I, in fact, my therapist one time said, she was like, your tweets are kind of intellectual, which I was like, you know what? Oh. I don't want you following my Twitter feed. <laughs> let's but, be Facebook friends. No, no, I'll talk to you in here. I will talk to you in here where I pay you for a private conversation. Yeah. Do you want, maybe you could have some tweet sessions. Uh, you know, I should. But I thought that was, yeah, anyway. Um, I, I think tweet therapy could be good. And the reason that I think so is because it would force you to get out the root of the problem in 140 characters. 
And that, I feel like a that's pithy party. a pithy party. One big pithy party. Yep. Therapy is one big pithy party. See, there's your fucking, there's your <laughs> next thing. Like you could totally. I mean, I love puns. What's better? Um, the Twitter is weird because you do kind of tell the truth. Like you have to be careful that it's basically not one nonstop stream of consciousness share. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear like you do. I mean, when I, before I started, People are like, oh, God. And the other thing people always say, like, oh, God, I don't want to hear what people are eating for lunch. And right away, first day that I had Twitter, I was like, God, this was a good ham sandwich. You know, like, and you have to stop yourself. I do. I love food. But I do realize a number of times a day I want to bitch about my weight, talk about what I ate. Right. Like, it's, who cares? Because it becomes an outlet. It becomes like an outlet that you're connected to where other it's a, it becomes like a support group, I guess. And it's really hard. I mean, do you you must remember a it time does. where um where our where culturally no one talked about anything private at all. It was considered really bad form to yeah. be like I'm not that old. Here's what's good. I, I am. <laughs> I feel like I am. I feel like I'm I'm part of that generation of just like you know, it, we came out of it, I think, a bit in the 80s, but, yeah. you know, 70s and, and before it was sort of yeah, like... you're right. There was a lot of privacy. No, no, no. We don't talk about, yeah. you know, we, yeah. we this is private. And yeah. then now there's like a badge of honor with how much people can dump their shit about That's themselves. That's absolutely true, actually. You're right. Absolutely right about that. And, it, with, and you do. You have to just be careful about what you want to keep to yourself. On, yeah. I also... There's a lot of rules that people would do. Like, I don't, you know... There's some bad Twitterers out there, <laughs> don't you think? Well, I'm, I mean, I like with anything, you know. There's going to be a bell curve. Yeah, you're right. There's going to be a bell curve. Be- <laughs> there, you know, like it, not everyone's going to be on top of it because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, when I, everyone is great, no one's great. But you know what? Don't just say Happy Friday. <laughs> don't do that. It's not good. No. Well, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, it's and sort of that don't whole. Don't tweet about when you're not feeling well. I don't want to hear about your cold. You know what's really hard to not do is that's a hard one. When, when I have a cold, I want to bitch about it on Twitter. Do you? N- no, I. What for me? What it, it's it's fighting the urge to uh, ru- to make Twitter my complaint desk yes. about uh, if I if someone is wronged me at a yes. company yes. or if I get bad customer yes. service. When I go, well, you Thank know, you very much, Jack Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> Hashtag sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> fail I hate fail. that I fail. hate just saying I hate fail I hate just saying I hate just saying just saying it's like no no I actually tweeted about it I said don't say just just saying at least just say like just ju- just judging <laughs> listen I don't want to be offensive yes you do somebody no just wrote like I, I wrote uh um you know, I forgot to write Anne. I was like, a, a instead of uh, I yeah. wrote like uh, Echo instead of Anne Echo or something. And somebody was like, you um, accidentally forgot to write Anne Echo. <laughs> Just Anne. <laughs> Fail. Fail. Everyone wants to tell people just want to be able to point out. So, you know, some of them are some of them are, think they're being helpful. And other yeah. people are like, ah, I see the hole in the armor. And I know they <laughs> I am oh I have waited wait waited for this day to take you down I and just today. Feel like they're all on their own personal gong show. They are it is. You know? Twitter is a fucking gong show. Yeah, I know. But conversely, I have to say as a performer, and I'm sure you have this experience too as a comedian, because I really feel like for years and years I've been powerless to the like internet commenter void where you just feel like there's this mass out there which usually isn't really there. 
that can say mean things and you have no retort or no reply. Sure. When people say real asshole things on Twitter, I love the comedy world's tactic of retweeting them. I think it is so awesome that people get shamed for being mean. I don't. You know, the reason that I don't do that specific tactic is because I don't want to draw any more attention to those people because I don't want them to find. I mean, the majority of people out there would be like, oh, what a sack of douches. But I feel like the uh, but I feel like there's enough. There's a there is a non zero number of people who that douchebag would connect with. Oh, completely. And no, then they then, then they grow stronger. I rarely do it personally, but I have I I have once or twice when someone has said like I mean, it's just and and usually people are so my followers tend to be very I'm a pretty innocuous. I'm not like a political comic or you know like right. I mean, there's certain like Colin Quinn is a combative comic that's what he likes to do sure. he, you, he, you can tell he takes pleasure in pissing people off right. and getting them all jazzed up and fighting with each other it's very funny to watch his I don't know if you follow him but he's hilarious to follow because he just says things and then you just watch the fire start you know yeah. and Steven Weber does that too where they just and and they have and they're very comfortable with that they're very comfortable with fighting they're back. trolling trolls they like to troll trolls it's great I think it's really appropriate you know but in a couple of cases someone you know someone once wrote like <laughs> it just made me laugh and i probably shouldn't have retweeted it but somebody said like and it was a compliment but they were <laughs> he said you're so funny and talented anna i can't believe you don't work <laughs> oh no oh no the dreaded backhanded compliment I know, it just made me laugh so I retweeted oh, it. oh oh you know i used to not think you were funny but i saw this recent thing and you were really oh, my oh God, why would you oh, why did you have to tell me that you know, my friend, for years, he was saying you were funny. I'm like, that guy's a fucking piece of shit. And then I finally watched your thing. And, and you are funny. I was, you know. I've had so many people, like, casting people, too, say, like, you know what? Your <laughs> show is actually really funny. Actually? Why did you it's have like, to say actually? Such a shocker. Why do you need that qualifier? You know, I actually watched your show, and we thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> hey. Can, can you just take out... Can we? Can you just read the subtext of? I know it's right Just up there. read everything. If you have, if I had a dime for all the, I, I, I don't have a TV. Like the first thing when they say to you, and then they always know who you are. Right. So you're like, well, if you don't have a TV, how do you know who I am then? Some people, I, some people, I've, I've talked about this in the podcast before. There's, this, there are some people who think that if you're on television or if you're at all remotely public. That that first of all, you have a million and you have a billion dollars, and that I do have a billion that, dollars. Oh, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I am I'm a little not, uncomfortable. I'm an, a Saturday Night Live oddly paid me seven hundred million dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> all right, so they think you have a million dollars. Okay, go on. That's so well. Yeah, I and just then, invested. No, very, narcissistic, well narcissistically, I just that just undermines my entire. No, no, no. I didn't mean to. Run. I'm sorry. I've built a whole I didn't mean philosophy to on this, and you're okay, saying it's not true. It's true. They all want you to pay. They they, they think you have, they give millions of dollars, and they also like. You know, this person is probably constantly surrounded by people telling them they're great. Oh my God, that's I'm just gonna. It. I'm gonna be the truth. I'm just teller. gonna ground them. Mm -hmm. I feel like they'll they'll thank me. They're gonna, <laughs> like so many times people say things you know in their head. They're like they're gonna thank me, mm -hmm. so that you you would turn to them and go, Oh my God, that is so refreshing. It's sort of like like on Bewitched. So refreshing. Like well, like on Bewitched when Endora would fuck something up and then like they would say something honest and horrible to the to the to the sponsor and they'd be like, "I really appreciate your honesty, Tate." Like that's <laughs> what they think you're going to turn and say to they them. Are, yeah. My favorite of all is you are so much better looking in person. <laughs> I heard that too. Do people tell you that cuz you should know that? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this before, but what? 
It's the, why? Uh, why, why would that possibly be comforting to me? So all that, all of the recorded information yes. is in that. <laughs> And I can't do anything about it. And I can't, I can't take it it's back. It's frozen in time? Frozen. Forever. Little fat and ugly? Perfect. Forever. And, and the internet will keep it alive forever like a graveyard of failure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I'm so glad. Oh, I, Thank, Thank you. you. For being the one guy who was brave enough to say it. I wish, you know what? I should beatbox right now because that's the only other way I could break this down anymore. <laughs> Thanks. I don't know what, I like, people, I you know. know, people have the best intentions and then sometimes it's just do. like. But I gotta say Twitter has been very positive for me that way because I feel like I'm mostly, you corral your own little weird anomalous brand of fans because I have weird Broadway fans plus I have weird Suburgatory fans plus I have weird SNL fans. Like, they're all kind of from a different country, you know? Yeah. Of their own. And so it's kind of nice that it's kind of nice to have them all in one place. Well, and then the and then the longer of a you know the longer you're in the business, the longer the career you have, then more people are like, oh, she does that, and she sings, and she's on Broadway, and she does it. Like yeah. you really, you know, it's. I think we have this idea going into performing of, I'm gonna do a thing and it's gonna hit, and then everything's gonna be. And you start to realize as you get older, like you know, it really is about <laughs> the sum total of things that you do yeah. that define. I mean, you know, like we, talking to Brian Cranston, like, ah, the business could have written him off after Malcolm in the Middle. But I like, know. but wait, but the, this amazing work was still to, ahead. I know. So I know. it's nice. You know, it's it's always I think if you can just stay in the game, then that's where the magic. Yeah. The, the valleys get deeper, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the I've got to get the fucks out of here. Get, sure. get, get, get louder and more and, and, and more uh, bone rattling. But um, but but yeah, you're right, because I have to say, though, the suburgatory came at a really interesting time for me where I felt like I wasn't really sure what I wanted kind of next. And I, I took it in a really kind of leap of faith way because it was a tiny part in the pilot. And it just turned it out. This just turned out to be like my one of my favorite things I've ever done in the sense of just, the you know, and the, I think Emily's such a good writer and yeah. I got to be Chris Parnell's wife. I mean, every part of it's like come together in a way that you have. That's actually the big lesson for me. Not that I'll remember it, but we have no <laughs> control. Right. Like I love as actors how much we sit around going like, mm, I, I read a number of scripts and they felt, you know, like, you know what? Actually, you had no idea if it was going to turn out well. I, I, I have to admit that to myself anyway. Maybe other people have that acumen, but, you know, I've been through a lot of pilot seasons now. I've read a lot of scripts and I have terrible taste. Half the 80% of the stuff that I'm like, that was a good one is the worst lemon ever. <laughs> that's like renowned as everybody's like the, how anyone could ever have green lit this, you know, where all the critics like cream it and it's canceled after two shows. Like, and, and suburgatory, I mean, you know, I, I just was kind of at this place where I was like, I just feel like working and I want to do stuff with interesting, nice people. And I met Emily and she was cool. And I just thought, I don't know. I have no idea if it's going to be good or bad. How am well, I supposed to know that? That's why you just, I think ultimately it's important for people to pick things that they're fun to do yeah. and things they care about. And, and then, you know, like, look, you know, again, using, using Will Ferrell as the example, I don't get the sense that that guy feels like I have to be in a starring blockbuster. It's like, Hey, I'm going to do a movie all in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just fucking, I'm going to, I'm going to start this internet. I'm just going to do this weird web video. Like yeah. he just, it's just like, Oh, he just does what is fun to him. My favorite story about Will Ferrell. And I've told it a couple of times, but his mom, Kay told me once this just sums up his entire awesomeness to me. When he was in middle school, he qualified for a gifted and talented program. Mm -hmm. Like he's super smart. And, um, and his mom, he had, he had signed up. There's after school programs at a school and he had signed up for square dancing for a section of square dancing. And then his mom got the letter back from the tag program saying like, 
your kids qualified for this excellent enrichment program and, you know, on this day of the week or whatever. And she went and she said, you qualified for this thing, but, you know, I know you, you also signed up for square dancing already, so you can choose, but they're going to do all these great things and they're going to teach you Mandarin and whatever. And he, and he was like, I think I'll do square dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I love, is it Kay Farrell? I was like, no, I'm just square dancing. <laughs> He's like, why not? He seemed like he would really and enjoy it. thus was born it. one I, of the greatest square dancers <laughs> the world a truly has hilarious ever human being. I mean, come on. What's not as fun as that? I just, it, to me, that's sort of the sum, that, that's like how I would imagine him picking his movies, you know? Yeah. And I think you're right. I think you have to just kind of go with a gut on, but I, you know, yeah, anyway. Well, uh, we're at the end of our hour. This was really fun. I could talk to you for like three more hours. Me too. God damn it. You got to come back on. I will. Please. Yeah. Um, And then I assume you are Anna Gasteyer on the Twitter. Yes. A-N-A-G-A-S-T-E-Y-E-R. Good for you. I know how to spell your name. Not a lot of people. I mean, there's one if I could go back in time. Why didn't I just change my name to Mandy? Mandy Sims. I mean, I would work so much. Two M's. God damn it. S- yeah, yeah, I- yeah. Two M's. M M E M M A N D Y Z. Oh no, I didn't mean Mandy two M's Sims. on the Sims. It's Mandy on the two M's on Mandy. M A N D Y M. It's M umlaut A N D apostrophe accent aigu. Oh, that's, that's the classic. That's uh, I love. That's the 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 L A story. Uh, I hate how people just have these crazy names. I'm just Sandy. Big S, little A, big D, E, E, E. Like her name was all fucking crazy. It's all in tattoos. Uh, when I first lived here in the 90s, I knew someone named Seven. What? First and last. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know her real name was Beth. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was Beth. And then it, and then it's like, yeah, but a number is like, I just need. Super hard to You know what it was? That, like, she took an acting class, and that, mm-hmm. acting, co- and that acting coach was probably drunk mm-hmm. and said, you guys need a you need a name that people can sink their teeth into, seven. and then she really mm-hmm. and I then know. change it after the movie Seven, which it was, it was I think it was even before that movie. Anyway, Mandy Sims, Anna Gasteyer, aka Mandy Sims. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Suburgatory is the show that uh, yeah. that people should be watching. That's right. It's on ABC at eight thirty on Wednesdays. And congratulations again on that. Thank you. I love it. I'm so glad to be there. And I love Chris Parnell. Please tell him I, I don't. I feel like I feel like if the two of you guys got together, it would be a resonant off because you both have rich resonant voices. <laughs> he has a great voice. So do you? No, I, my voice is all right, but yeah, I'm I'm nasally. He has a really Chris Parnell. Has, he's he's Hotels dot com now, and he's he's great. I love him so much. Well, uh, that's it. I that's don't. It. I I I will have you back on in a couple months and and keep me updated on stuff. And I, will. Um, I don't know. It's a total pleasure. Thanks for having. Nice me. to see you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. I w- oh, bye, everybody. That's we just say enjoy a burrito at the end oh, of the show. Okay, well, it just I love means it. it just means like enjoy your present. That's good. That's a good. Right. Yeah. All enjoy right. it. Nice. All right. Here we go. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. For a free digital scale and up to $55 of postage, go to Stamps.com and enter the promo code NERDIST. I have missed these Friday night dinners. Mm. Hey, welcome to Harvey Graw! At these family dinners... Delicious, everyone! 
Dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we embarrass you? Jump, jump, jump. It's already better than I dared to dream. They're extra. Let the wild rumpus start! Woo, 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 woo. And they're embarrassing. We know how hard it is to move on from the first girl that you ever slept with. Not the first girl who I ever slept yeah, with. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. You're a regular lady killer. I thought you said it was going to be boring here tonight. Woo! No! I really hoped it would be. But they couldn't love each other more. Surprise! It's mom and dad being totally normal. Wow. So, dinner next Friday, everyone? Would miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream free only on Freebie.